0: What is the most effective form of
1: birth control? How can a teen stay anonymous if getting birth control from their regular provider? Are there any extra side effects
0: associated with starting hormonal birth control at a young age?
1: There's a lot to consider when choosing the right birth control. What will work for your lifestyle? What are your goals? Are there other health issues you should consider before starting a method? Where can you go to find the right birth control for you? On this final Back to Basics episode of the Women's HealthCast, our guest experts, Dr. Ryan Wellwitz and Dr. Paula Cody answer all our common birth control questions. What kinds of birth control are available, how they work, and how someone can figure out what might be a good method for them. From the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology in the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health, I'm Jackie Askins, and you're listening to the Women's Health Cast. We've talked a lot about um, sexually transmitted infections as one aspect of safe sex, one um, area of protection, and also pretty huge is pregnancy prevention, I think. Um, that can factor pretty heavily in for a lot of people as well, Um so let's talk about that for a little bit so how do how can people prevent unintended pregnancies
2: They can use contraception um, and there are many different forms there's some for men um, or or um, people with male anatomy and then um, uh, people with female anatomy um, and so um, there's there's many different types the most common used um, um, is actually permanent sterilization so either um, removal of the fallopian tubes, removal of a portion of the fallopian tubes. Um, they used to have a procedure where they would actually um, occlude or block the fallopian tubes, although that's no longer FDA approved. Um, but again, they, those patients fall into that category. Um, after that, um, birth control pills, commonly the pill, um, which is comes in multiple different forms. Um, typically, it would have a estrogen component as well as a progesterone component. Um, and what that does is it helps stop, uh, a patient from ovulating. Um, and then, um, the after, and that's about 12% of patients. And then, um, we have another form of contraception called, uh, LARCs or long acting reversible contraceptions, things like IUDs, implants, um, which is like a, a little silicone rod that's implanted in the arm. Those, um, about 10% of patients use those. And then um, male condom falls into about eight to 9%. And then male sterilization falls into about 6%.
0: And when we talk about these different methods, um, I'm gonna give the spiel I give, because this is a talk I do probably 12 times a day, right? Um, So the spiel I give is that um, even the best form of pregnancy prevention that we have, as far as these medications, is 99% which would be the the long acting reversible contraception that Dr. Lewillowitz talked about. The only 100% way to prevent pregnancy is abstinence and avoiding of all um, sexual contact. Um, Being very clear that um, avoiding all contact because some people feel that if the withdrawal and I'm using the air quotes that we shouldn't be using but the withdrawal method is a method of preventing pregnancy and I've had quite a few people who have gotten pregnant with the withdrawal method. So, if we're going through the different options that Dr. Luowellovitz talked about, um, for um, we can start with the birth control pills because those are something you have to take every day and pretty much at the same time every day. Like Dr. Luowellovitz said, most or many of them have estrogen and progesterone, but there is also a progestin-only option um, because there are some people who cannot use methods of contraception that have estrogen in them. For example, certain types of headaches or blood pressure problems, liver problems. There's a whole list of of reasons why you can't use certain options. Um, And so there is a progestin only option. Again, the the thing about the pill is that you have to take them every day at the same time every day. And again, counseling for for effectiveness using typical use is 91 to 93% effective at preventing pregnancy. For both of those, they don't prevent infections at all. So we still recommend barrier methods. Now there's different ways to deliver the same estrogen progesterone combinations that you can see in a birth control pill. There's the, um, a patch, a transdermal patch that goes on your skin that lasts for a week at a time. And then there's a, um, an, a ring that goes up in your vagina that lasts for three to four weeks at a time. Again, those as far as effectiveness is 91 to 93% effective at preventing pregnancy. There's a shot that you can get d- called Depo-Provera that's a progesterone only. So if you have any reasons that you can't use any of the forms that have estrogen in it, Depo is an option. It's a shot you get in your arm or your leg every 10 to 12 weeks. As far as pregnancy prevention goes, it's about 96% effective at preventing pregnancy. Um, then we have the LARCs, that, um, the long-acting reversal contraception. So there's the Nexplanon. Like Dr. Llewellyn said, it's a silicone. It looks almost like a matchstick and it gets inserted into your arm. So you do have to go to a doctor who's been trained in insertion and removal to get that done. And it lasts for three to five years. And as far as pregnancy prevention goes, it's 99.9%. And then there's um, a bunch of different types of IUDs that last anywhere from three years up to 12 years. Some have hormone in them, where the hormone is mainly locally absorbed and the hormone um, is a progesterone only. And then there's the copper IUD that has no hormones in it that lasts for up to 12 years. And those are 99%, uh, 99.9% effective at preventing um, contraception. Again, even the best ones that we have are not 100%. So that risk is always there. None of them prevent infections at all. So you still do have to, um, use the um, protections that we talked about earlier in this episode.
1: So for review, that's barrier methods. That means things like internal or external condoms and dental dams. Those are the methods that can help reduce your exposure risk for sexually transmitted infections. I think um, in addition to preventing pregnancy, a lot of the methods that you listed, some of them can affect a uh, menstrual cycle and um, the like length of period or the amount of bleeding. There's lots of other um, like body functions that uh, birth control can have an impact on. And that kind of leads me to my question of how someone can choose a good method for them if they're interested in – no one should use birth control if they're not interested in using it. And if they are, um, how can they kind of walk through the variety of options and pick one that's a really good fit for their lifestyle and their needs?
2: This is – Conversation I have all the time, um, and I think I think what it, it, every it's individualized to each patient, and and what their goals are, and why they're seeking contraception, um, because some patients actually come in specifically to control their menstrual bleeding, um, and then others are coming in to prevent pregnancy, and then also hoping to get control of their menstrual bleeding as well. So. Um, you kind of have to discuss what a patient's options are and Dr. Cody just listed them all out. And, um, so, um, you know, you, you talk through all of that and then, and then it's also just having a conversation about what is realistically going to work for a patient, you know, is a patient, someone who's good at taking a pill every day. And if they're not, that's not an effective form of contraception for that patient and, you know, while they can elect to, to try that, I think I think we as providers also need to, you know, point out that, you know, again, this is only going to be as effective as, as if you're willing, you know, as, as you use it. And um, so um, so I think just having like a good conversation, an honest conversation.
0: So how how I usually approach it in, a, in an office is what avail, what options are not available to my patients? So the first part of the visit is actually screening for the, any contraindications.
1: I just want to share a quick definition, Dr. Cody. You said contraindications as a word, um, and I just wanted to define that word for our listeners. Uh, That can mean anything like a symptom or another medical condition. That would be like a reason a person shouldn't take a particular medication or treatment because it might be harmful for them specifically.
0: Um, Most of the contraindications are related to estrogen use, but um, like I said, certain types of headaches or liver problems, blood clotting risk, those kind of things, and trying to figure out what options are not available to the patients, and then which ones are available to them and what are their goals, just like Dr. Luellawitz said. Now, interestingly, as providers, usually our preference is um, we want them to our patient to choose the most effective, method, and that's usually what my priority is. But oftentimes, it's surprising that that's not the priority of the patient sitting in front of me. Um, The research has shown with teenagers and young adults specifically, their priorities are ease of use, side effect profile, and acceptance to their parents and to their peers. And so where I'm trying to, you know, me trying to push something that they're not ready for either, sometimes shuts down the conversation. So we usually, we start with, um, when I do my counseling, I'm starting with Um, the pill, the patch, the ring, the shot, the implant, and the IUD. And I go in that order because that goes from um, hardest to use, right, every day to every week, every month, every three months, every three to five years, and every, you know, three to 12 years. So it's going from hardest to use, but also possibly the most commonly used are most acceptable to their parents and peers. So again, if they're not ready to hear about an IUD and I start with the IUD, I might've just shut, shut the conversation down. So starting with the pills, which is something that people have heard of or have had friends use. And so again, working that way, we end up end up going also from least effective to most effective. So some research has shown that um, in the adult population, starting counseling with the long acting reversible contraception will increase uptake with that. Um, with kids, it might be a little bit different. So.
2: I actually counsel patients in a similar fashion. I usually start with, you know, the combined uh, pills and then work my way into, um, you know, progesterone, progestin only, and then into the long acting.
0: We have a very, in um, the teenage and young adult clinic, a high uptake of the long acting reversible contraceptives. Um, Even people who have heard a lot of, um, a lot of bad things about things or a lot of, from their health teachers, from parents, from friends, whatever, um, and just giving them time and space to ask questions and learn actually about the what what's true and what's not true um, can help make the uh, the patient will choose what's right for them.
1: I wanted to ask um, and because I've maybe heard this concern about um, implants or IUDs, these long acting methods um, kind of the same sort of rumor mill um, that you mentioned Dr. Lallett and I just wanted to clarify it's they are um an available option for teens or younger people can teens opt into IUDs and implants. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Go ahead, um, the um I
0: tend uh, I tend to aim for about 14 years as as my youngest age just because it is um to get an IUD placed it you have to um be able to tolerate the pelvic exam, and um, so again we'll go through everything. And 14 is when I tend to feel like people can tolerate Okay, I. It's not that I wouldn't give it to a 13-year-old. It's just I, That's the age group I tend to see. Um, as I should say, the youngest that I tend to see and place the IUDs in. Next, planons. It can be at any age. Um, again, um, sometimes people ask when is too young to start some sort of birth control, and it's if if the risk of pregnancy is there that. All the birth control options are available to them.
2: Uh, Dr. Cody was mentioning that um, she likes patients to be 14. Um, I wanted to say that even as an adult who um, has a hard time or is concerned about a pelvic exam um, and is interested in a a form of of like an IUD or a long-acting reversible contraception, there's ways for us to overcome those barriers um, I've gone all the way to the level of taking someone to the operating room and what we call an exam under anesthesia, um, and then placing an IUD for patients. So if there's anyone out there who's listening and they have, you know, struggles with exams, um, but they're interested in these forms, please see your doctor. Um, I, I you know, I, I would hope that they would be able to overcome those barriers. So.
1: So this was a question that was shared by youth advocates from providers and teens communicating for health patch. We got a lot of questions from patch, uh, does using birth control, especially long acting reversible birth control, like an IUD or an implant affect your fertility in the future.
2: Some people hear rumors that things like IUDs or even birth control in general can affect your ability to conceive or have a baby in the future. And that's not true at all. Um, They don't, um, they do not affect future fertility for patients. um, And, um, you know, we remove (laughs) IUDs and Nexplanons and, you know, know, have people stop their pills and they're able to get pregnant all the time in my clinic. Um, But yeah, there's no evidence that shows that any of these would um, affect future pregnancy or fertility.
1: Can using hormonal birth control affect your long-term health in other ways?
2: There is some... um, evidence though when it comes to cancers that um actually contraception combined oral contraception or birth control pills can actually lower um your patient's risks of ovarian endometrial and colorectal cancer um there is a slight Increased risk actually for breast cancer, but that tends to decrease over time, and especially after a patient stops um, using the medication. And again, that has to go with the side effects of um, estrogen and progestin, um, in particular, breast cancer is one that is reactive to those hormones. So, but again, it's it's a slight increase, and in, you know, for most patients, it's not going to increase their overall lifetime risk. Mm-hmm.
1: I have one more question about um, birth control methods, and that is, if uh, someone tries out a method and finds, "Wow, this this maybe isn't working for me. I don't like the side effects, or this isn't um, like fitting in my life the way I wanted." Uh, can they change methods uh, once you've once you've picked something and it's not working out? Can you try something new? Change your mind? Um, how does that work in a, like with your doctor?
0: Absolutely. So these are great conversations to have. Um, and whenever you start a method, none of them are permanent. Even the long-acting reversible contraceptions like the implant in the arm or the IUD, those, it, even if they last for 3 to 5 years or 3 to 12 years, depending on the method, that doesn't mean they have to stay in for that long. If you try it and you don't like it, they're, that's why they're called long-acting reversible contraception because we can, we can take them out and try
1: something different. Sometimes birth control fails. It could be a, a condom breaking or a barrier method not working or uh, maybe noticing that I've missed a pill. Um, and what are someone's options if they've like, in that Im- immediate post-sexual encounter kind of space, if they've noticed that their method of birth control failed? Um, okay, I guess I'm asking about emergency contraception. Can you tell me a little bit about what the what the options are in that space. Absolutely, so emergency contraception is an option you have
0: after one something that Jackie just mentioned, or even if you had a sexual encounter with no prevention at all. So it doesn't have to be a failure of a method, it could just be no method was used at all. And um, those are all available um, still, even after the Dobbs decision. This is one of the top calls I get right now is what has that um, changed emergency contraception and that has not. So we, you, there's, still, um, th- there's two different types of pills that are available and an IUD insertion that are inv- available. Um, one of the pills is called Plan B. It's levonogestrel. That's best with t- if it's taken within three days of either unprotected sex or uh, method failure. Um, there's the pill that's called Ella that is um, good within five days of um, either unprotected sex or um, a failure of a method and a copper IUD which, again, is good within five days of um, unprotected sex or a failure of a method. Um, each of those have pros and cons. They're important to talk with your doctor about. Plan B is available over-the-counter that you can just go to a pharmacy. There is a, um, a weight limit on it that it might decrease in effectiveness if you're above a certain weight. Same thing with Ella. There's a decrease in effectiveness if you're above a certain weight. That um, Ella, you do have to go to a, a provider and have a pregnancy test to get a prescription for. And the copper IUD, you do have to go to a provider who is trained in insertion of the IUD. Um, the, I, the copper IUD, there is no weight limit for, and um, once that's placed in during that time the time period, it can stay in up to 12 years to help prevent further pregnancies as well.
2: Yeah, and actually they're showing that um, the, um... Mirena or the Liletta IUD are also effective forms, and those are progesterone IUDs, and those are usually good up to six to seven years, depending on the manufacturer.
1: So we've learned about birth control. We've talked about emergency contraception. Um, unintended pregnancies do still happen. So I guess I want to ask what someone's options are if they are experiencing an unintended pregnancy. I know this conversation is a little more challenging following the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs versus Jackson, which happened in um, June 2022 and had huge impacts on the availability and the legality of abortion across the country. But can you just walk me through what to do, what happens if someone's experiencing an unintended pregnancy?
2: I mean, I think the first thing to do is, is you know, if you have a positive pregnancy test, You know, please contact your doctor. You can also contact Planned Parenthood. Um, They're always a great resource throughout the country. Um, And then they can walk a patient through options. Obviously, with the Dobbs decision, things have become um, trickier. I mean, we're located in Wisconsin, and um, our state has reverted to an old law that now makes um, elective termination illegal, And, um, but that doesn't mean that a patient can't access abortion services. Um, there are avenues for a patient to get resources to either get, you know, travel to another state, um, or, you know, funds to travel to another state, um, where abortion is safe and legal. Um, so, I mean, the, the thing, the best thing to do is to reach out to, you know, a, a board serve, you know, or a, a qualified OBGYN, um, or reach out to Planned Parenthood. Um, and then we will walk patients through those steps. Um, or even, you know, not even just an OBGYN, I mean, it could be a family physician too, um, pediatrician, whoever, you know, whoever's there that you trust. Um, sorry, I don't want to <laughs> just, you know, plug my own practice. Um, but, um, but yeah, so it, even though it, there are now hurdles to jump over, um it doesn't mean that a patient has to continue an undesired pregnancy um, and um, again, we can help patients navigate those hurdles.
1: So now we've got some time to tackle questions submitted by youth advocates from Wisconsin's providers and teens providers and teens communicating for health or patch program. Uh, thanks again to the patch advocates who took some time to think about their questions and share their questions with us. And now we can hear a little bit about what they're curious about.
2: What is the most effective form of birth control?
0: The only 100% way to not get pregnant is abstinence. And that truly, even the best things we have, the only 100% way to not get pregnant is to not have sex. That being said, Dr. Luellowitz.
2: The etonogestrel uh, arm implant is the most effective form of contraception on the market. Um, again, it's a small silicone rod that gets in, placed under the skin and the arm.
0: FDA approved for three years, but um, uh, uh, research has shown um, effective deceptive five years. Not too far behind It pretty much like minuscule. Second place to those, or I guess third place if we're counting abstinence, would be the intrauterine devices. So there's, again, a couple different kinds. There's the copper IUD that lasts 10 to 12 years. That's greater than 99% effective at preventing pregnancy. There's the the hormone IUDs that, depending on the brand of IUD you choose, can last anywhere from three to seven years. And again, those are greater than 99% effective at preventing pregnancy as well.
1: We've talked a lot now about some of the more long-acting types of um, birth control, what are some of the benefits of having more long-acting forms like that?
2: I mean, with every form of contraception, there's there's a human aspect of it, right? You know, so if you if you don't take it or use... You know, if you, let's say you're taking a, a birth control pill, right? You know, if you don't take it, it's not going to work, right? And we're all human and we all have... <laughs> We all have, um, you know, we all forget about things, you know, I take a blood pressure medication and sure enough, I'll forget it, you know, once in a while here or I go on a trip and I don't pack it in my bag. Right. And so the the benefits of using a like we call them larks or long acting reversible contraception is that. you you take a little bit of that human element out of it and it's just kind of automatic. It's in place. It's not, you're not having to take a pill each day. You're not having to go to the clinic for an injection every three months. Um, it's just, it's just there. And you know, it's kind of like a set it and forget it sort of a thing. But, um,
0: yeah, and it's it's not a hundred percent again, like we've talked about. So they're really, really good, but nothing is a hundred percent. I have to, I always have to hammer that home because people often forget and they feel like they said it, forget it, and I don't have to worry about it. It's like, well, you know, we still have to have these conversations. Now, depending on the type of contraception you choose, there's also non-pregnancy prevention benefits, um, pros and cons for all of them. So sometimes they can help with really heavy periods or they can help with really um, painful periods. Um, some some types of contraception can help decrease the amount of ovarian cysts made or if you have a diagnosis like polycystic ovarian syndrome and you have certain um, symptoms that you are trying to minimize like acne or hair in places you don't want, there's different types of these hormones that we also use for birth control that we can also use to help with those kind of symptoms or people who have um, significant mood changes with their menstrual cycles or people who have... um, uh, oh, there's, I mean, there's so many other things that can happen. There's also, um, some of them e- can actually help decrease your chance of cancer.
2: Yeah, actually, it's one of the, you know, the, the IUD, the hormonal or, or the levonorgestrel IUD is, is used for a treatment for precancerous cells in patients um, who are, you know, developing that.
0: Yep. So there, there's pros and cons to everything. The best thing is to talk to your, to your provider to see what's best for you. Are there any extra side effects, short term or long term, associated with starting birth control at a young age?
2: If you hadn't started uh, puberty yet, then again, that could, um, having the extra hormones could be a cause of precocious puberty. Um, But as someone who has gone through puberty, um, there doesn't seem to be any long term or even short-term effects associated with hormonal birth control, um, and um, it doesn't affect fertility.
0: One caveat, one little shout out is actually Depo Provera. So, um, mm. teenagers are supposed to be getting their maximum bone accrual, meaning every day their bones are supposed to be getting stronger, stronger, stronger. And um, that um, there is some research that shows that bones don't get stronger necessarily while you're on Depo, and. That This is more of an academic thing. It doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be any fractures or give you osteoporosis. But we we do, do tend to um, watch the length of time um, someone with growing bones is on Depo because we want to make sure we're not causing any bone damage down the line. Again, this is a conversation you should be having with your provider. Um, and it, Depo itself is an excellent pregnancy prevention method and... We use it all the time for things that are also not even pregnancy prevention. However, that is something that being on that long term could have some detrimental effects to your bones.
1: How can someone get access to contraceptives such as condoms, birth control, as a teen?
0: One of the best ways you can get um, both proper information about these types of contraception but also prescriptions is talking with your primary care doc or your OBGYN Um, And if your primary care doc isn't the one who can prescribe these things, they will make sure that you get to the proper place that can prescribe these things. Um, Certain things are available over the counter, like uh, condoms, dental dams, other barrier methods. Um, Also, emergency contraception is available, or uh, um, some types of emergency contraception is available over the counter as well. And there are other places that you can get even free condoms, something like the um, Planned Parenthood or Public Health Department, and even some schools, um, you can get some free condoms.
2: Yeah, and there's also, um, there are also some states that allow pharmacists to distribute um, contraception in the pharmacy. Um, so Oregon is one that I know of in particular, Wisconsin, that's not available here. Um, so again, if you're in a different state listening to this, then, you know, it may be worthwhile checking up on that. Um, but you know, as, as I've kind of mentioned multiple times, Planned Parenthood is always a great resource. They also have, um, funds for people to, um, if they can't afford contraceptives, they also have ways to help fund that so people can afford contraception as well.
1: How can a teen stay anonymous if getting birth control from their regular provider?
0: If there's any ways that um, teens are trying to get a hold of um, safer sex practices without letting their parents know, again, um, as providers, we always try to encourage the open communication with parents. But if that's not an option, um, places like um, Planned Parenthood, you can actually go for um, confidential uh, services that won't involve parents. It doesn't involve your insurance, so you don't have to worry about um explanation of benefits or something like that, um, outing you for um, pregnancy prevention or um, safer sex practices. Um, But they also use some sort of sliding scale fee, you know, that if you don't have a lot of money, they will, they will work with you and you don't have to worry about, you know, my parents make all this money and, you know, I don't make any money. Again, it's a sliding scale fee based on what you yourself make.
2: What an EOB is, is an EOB is an explanation of benefits and what that is it's a, it's a printout of what the insurance has paid for. And so if someone is on their parents' insurance, there's a chance that a parent could actually see what services were billed for. Okay. Now, some States and some insurance companies are de-identifying these codes, you know, the, the codes that we used for billing. And so then you may not be able to actually see that like this visit was billed for like an IUD, but um, some States don't have that, those protections in place. So you kind of have to look around and then like, again, see what your insurance says. So um, one way to avoid that again is by going to like somewhere like Planned Parenthood, where you don't have to use the insurance that you have. Um, There's also title X, title 10 clinics um, that there's a link to that we can, Link on the website here um, that also um, don't necessarily use insurance, um, and there's other sometimes local free birth control programs in each state.
1: We've talked a lot about you know having the safe or safe or safer sex discussion with um, healthcare providers, with healthcare teams, um, and uh, you know a lot of families might also want to approach this conversation at home, um, and it's. There's a lot to cover and it can be uncomfortable. Um, I'm wondering if you have any recommendations or tips for how and when to approach talking about sex and safe sex and contraception um, as a parent or as a supportive adult with younger people in your life? You know, gone are the days of sitting down and
0: having the birds and the bees talk when someone's like 15 because um, there's so much that that kids need to know well before that age. And so when you start talking about um, different body parts and your child asks about how a baby is made, that's a perfect example of, of, of being honest about um, how a baby is made and then ways you can prevent having a baby is a pretty easy step there. Um, and then at each developmental stage, making sure that you're you're framing things in the appropriate manner and actually asking Answering the questions that they're asking, because if they're asking the question and you you defer the answer again, it suddenly becomes crowded and or covered in shame, and they might not be comfortable asking it again and maybe going to other resources that are not medically accurate or comprehensive. So, having the conversation early and often, using different, um, I think using different things in the media can be very helpful. So for example, if they talk about teen pregnancy on a TV show, that's a great opportunity to talk with your kid about pregnancy prevention and safer sex. Or when um, a new, I don't know, uh, like a condom commercial comes on TV, that's a great opportunity just to take a quick check in with your kid about to see if they have any questions about things.
2: Yeah, we had a billboard, we were driving in the car and we saw a billboard about sex trafficking. And, um, you know, it was an opportunity that arose with my, my kids and I took it. And so I, I would encourage parents to seize those opportunities. You know, um, the point is, I think it's just to, to start those conversations, normalize sex, normalize, you know, body anatomy, normalize talking about contraception. Um, and, um, when it becomes normal, it's so much easier to talk about because you're not, there's no shame. Um, And then when, you know, your kids come home and they, they telling you things that their friends are saying, you know, you, it's, it's easy to just step in and say, well, you know, you know, you know, we talked about this, let's talk about it again and seize those opportunities. Um, And just, you know, I think repetition is helpful for anyone. um, And just, you know, like, Hey, let's talk about this again. This is coming up. Um, and yeah, I think, I think the earlier you start again, uh, the better it's going to be, but it's not too late. Start now.
0: (laughs) And I have a good, I have a good example of, um, a patient. So I had a, I think it was a 13 year old boy came to came in for some other complaint. And every time I'm with a patient, they get at least two minutes alone with the doctor to ask any questions. And oftentimes I'll ask like, have you had, um, your health class at school—is there anything that you had questions about there that wasn't covered in school? And one of the boys actually said, "What is oral sex?" And so I, I'm like, "Okay, well," and I explained oral sex as a mouth and genitals, so it could be a penis or vulva. Um, and he's like, "Well, I asked my my health teacher what oral sex was, and they said you're too young to know about that. That's none of your business." And So he he felt like he was shamed for even asking what it was. And it's such an important thing for protection. And so when I explained it, just like, this is what happens. And he's like, well, why didn't the health teacher just say that? And I'm like, well, I don't know. I guess they didn't feel comfortable answering that question. And again, that was an opportunity that that luckily the kid felt comfortable enough asking me the question because they were kind of shamed asking the question before. And so making sure, again, trying your best to be nonjudgmental. And if you don't know the answer, Tell them that, don't make up an answer, but tell them you don't know the answer and let's look it up together and go to one of these medically accurate comprehensive sites that will be attached to this program, right? And always, always ask, feel free to ask your doctor about things because um, for me as a pediatrician, I ask these questions on a very regular basis and I can promise you there's no question I haven't been asked about Reproductive or sexual health, and so if if you need to punt to the doctor, punt to the doctor, but make sure that you're um, you're not shaming them because they will try to find the answer, and they may get some medically inaccurate answers.
1: I wanted to ask about your favorite resources. So the hope and the dream is that, of course, everyone has a, a safe, trusted adult who can work through these questions with them, um, and. That might not be the reality for everyone, um, but we do have the whole of the Internet uh, and what we see on some sites. Yeah, for better. Exactly. For better, for worse. So where do you recommend looking for reliable, accurate, you know, safe information about safe sex, um, STI prevention and contraception? What are some of your favorite resources, uh, bonus points if they are age appropriate for, um, you know, really like useful for younger people so my favorite two websites
0: that are great for adolescents and young adults um, are out of boston children's and one is youngwomenshealth.org and the counterpart is youngmenshealthsite.org i refer to um, patients to that very frequently because um, it's medically accurate easy to read um, just excellent also conversation starters for parents for birth control, I use um, bedsider.org. Again, medically accurate, um, very clear to read, and um, and I send patients there to get more information.
2: Yeah, uh, I tend to, um, I like bedsider.org as well. I've used that a lot. Um, the I also um, like the... Uh, Planned Parenthood website, particularly for contraception, I believe they have some really good information on there, and I feel like it's very easy to use. Also, um, they have a lot of great information about STIs, emergency contraception, um, abortion access as well. Um, and then um, the CDC website, while it can be difficult to navigate sometimes, it does have good information on it. And um they actually have some really nice tables and charts that are 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 very simple or they're, they're they're relatively simple to understand. So
1: as always, every resource that was mentioned, I will make sure is linked in the um show page for this episode. So, uh just take a peek over there if you want to check out any of these websites to learn more. Um Thank you both, again, so much for spending this time with me today. This was an incredibly helpful conversation. i um, so glad that we could talk about safe sex and contraception and STIs with, um, with both Dr. Lowellitz and Dr. Cody. Thank you again
0: Thanks for, for having, having, us. having
1: us. All of the resources mentioned by Dr. Cody and Dr. Llewellitz in this episode are linked in the show notes on our podcast page, or you can find the links at womenshealthcast.podbean.com. This has been the final episode in our Back to Basics mini series. So much thanks to Dr. Lavellwitz and Dr. Cody for spending several hours with us, sharing their expertise on anatomy and puberty, the menstrual cycle, sex, gender, and sexuality, bodily autonomy, and safer sex practices. You can find all of the episodes in the Back to Basics series at womenshealthcast.podbean.com or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. And you can find the Department of OBGYN on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WISCOBGYN. The Women's HealthCast is a production of the UW-SMPH Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. This episode was produced and engineered by Rob Garza. Let us know how we're doing. Rate and review us in your podcast app, and let us know what issues you'd like to learn about at the link on our show page.